this is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. From the world's humanitarian capital, we explore the challenges facing our planet. Whether it's migration or climate change, human rights or global health, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for some straight talk with the people facing up to those challenges. Welcome to Inside Geneva, the podcast. Today we're going to take a look at the UN Human Rights Council. But first, a little bit of UN human rights history. We stand today at the threshold of a great event, both in the life of the United Nations and in the life of mankind. This Universal Declaration of Human Rights may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere. That was Eleanor Roosevelt presenting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to the UN back in 1948. 70, 71 years ago, UN member states were determined to prevent a repeat of the horrors of the Second World War, and they were filled with idealism and aspiration. So that declaration promised, among other things, the right to life, the right not to be tortured. Fast forward seven decades, and we're now just at the close of another UN Human Rights Council session. 47 elected member states, their job, in principle, to uphold human rights the world over and to shine a spotlight on violations wherever they occur. But how does that work exactly? I'm joined today by Bob Last, Deputy Head of the Human Rights Team at the United Kingdom Mission, and John Fisher, Geneva Director of Human Rights Watch, and as ever, Danny Warner of the Graduate Institute. Bob, hello. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Can I ask you first, because the UK is a voting member of the Council, you're an elected member of the Council, what exactly does that entail? So the UK is, is coming to the end of six years on the Human Rights Council, and we're right at the end of a very busy three-week session. The difference for voting members as we get towards the end of the session is that we actually get a vote. So any member state can put forward a resolution at the Human Rights Council. But when it comes to the end, it's only the members that actually vote on those texts. And over the next two days, the UK will be registering its vote on on some resolutions and on others, the, the resolutions are expected to go through without a vote. You've got a question, Danny, about this. It's a double question. First, I note that the United States is no longer a member, and certain people criticize some of the members for being human rights violators. How do you deal with both of those situations? So the membership of the Human Rights Council is decided by the UN's General Assembly, and the membership is broken down between the different regional groups. The West, for its part, is actually at a numerical disadvantage. We only have seven seats the Eastern European countries have, have six seats, the Latin American countries have eight, uh, and the Africans uh, and the Asian groups have, have 13 apiece. In terms of the US role, when the US joined the, the council a few years ago and, and then served for a couple of terms, they did have a very positive impact. The, the council was a very different body back then, and, and we saw the US put forward a number of resolutions on thematic issues like freedom of association, uh, as well as country resolutions, Iran and Sri Lanka, which have had a big impact. Since their departure, other countries have had to fill that gap. And the UK is one of those that has taken up some of the resolutions which the, the US uh, no longer presents. 
John Fisher, Human Rights Watch, because you guys, of course, you don't have a vote, and yet the human rights groups play a huge role in the Human Rights Council. Every single session, I get detailed reports from you, from Amnesty, for the uh, Organisation Against Torture. How exactly do you two work together? How do you get a voting member like Bob to, 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 to get your agenda up there and voted on? Well, at the end of the day, the Human Rights Council is a political body. As you mentioned, it's composed of, of 47 member states. So they're the ones with all the, all the power, the, uh, the ability at the end of the day to, to press their button and decide whether to vote in favour of or against a resolution, what passes and, and what doesn't. Our role is, as uh, human rights organisations is to, to be a bit of a, a reality check, to monitor the debates at the Human Rights Council, to make inputs, also to bring forward the stories of, of victims and those who, who face violations around the world. Human rights organisations do have a, a high degree of access to the Human Rights Council in Geneva, and I think from its outset that's been one of the, the strengths of the Human Rights Council. But also I think what is quite inspiring is when, uh, when people who face human rights uh, violations travel all the way to Geneva in order to, to tell their, their stories. Uh, just earlier this week, we heard the, the sister of a, a Saudi woman's activist who had been uh, arrested, detained and tortured, talking uh, about her sister's experience and calling for the, for the release of her sister. Supposing I have a small NGO somewhere in the world, how would I become accredited to the council? There is a, a body that meets in New York, which is called the NGO Committee uh, of, of one of the larger committees of the UN. Uh, it receives uh, applications for accreditation to the UN. There is a resolution which sets out the, the criteria for accreditation. And once you have accreditation, then you can attend the sessions, speak at the sessions, participate in a number of the, the debates. There are challenges with that committee because, again, it is uh, a committee which is composed of, of states, uh, and therefore some of them uh, unfortunately choose to misuse that committee to, to block NGOs whose views they don't necessarily support. I think China has been quite notorious at engaging in that, uh, in that committee, asking questions of, of NGOs, including Human Rights Watch, as to what are our political positions on issues such as, uh, as Tibet or uh, Hong Kong or otherwise, and then often delaying for, for years. Bob, you signalled you wanted to say something on that. How do, you, do you find them a nuisance, <laughs> the NGOs, or helpful? I think states generally sometimes find NGOs a nuisance, but, but that's their role, and their role is to persuade states to do things that they might not otherwise do. And if you look at the resolutions that we have this session, most of the good things that have come out from the Human Rights Council over the years have been inspired by the human rights NGOs. If you look at the really important resolution that we had earlier this year on sexual orientation and, and gender identity, which renewed a, a council expert on, on that topic, that was driven by civil society. This session, the UK will be renewing a special rapporteur on contemporary forms of slavery. That mandate has been around since the, the council began. But before we established that, we had no mechanism on, on slavery at the Human Rights Council or its predecessor mechanism, the, the Commission on Human Rights. And it took civil society 10 years of, of lobbying to persuade a country, and in this case the UK, to take up that challenge and try and create that sort of mechanism. Let's unpick that a bit. I'm glad you raised the issue of sexual orientation because one of the things on my list for this programme is, is not just to explain to people, although obviously it's important how the Human Rights Council works, but what exactly does it do that's good? Because we know it's not the Security Council. It cannot sanction countries. It cannot refer them to the International Criminal Court. And yet, I think perhaps this particular example, and maybe I'll ask you first, John, and then Bob, the history of this, because 
it was the Human Rights Council that really started to raise this issue and make member states look at it and say, right, this has to be in our human rights work now. I remember when I moved to Geneva, it was a good uh, 12 or 13 years ago, around the time that the Human Rights Council was being created. And at that time, uh, I was very focused on issues of sexual orientation and, and gender identity. I was with a, a different NGO, but it's a priority for Human Rights Watch too, of course. Uh, and we could barely even say the word sexual orientation within the, the council chamber without some states banging the table, calling a point of order, saying these issues have no place within the international human rights framework. And fast forward uh, uh, a decade, and we've, we've now got an independent expert created by the Human Rights Council, mandated to look at issues of violence and, uh, and discrimination against uh, people based upon their sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, that expert is doing uh, phenomenal work, is building support and dialogue with countries around the world. Uh, we heard states from the African group welcoming the work of the, uh, of the independent expert. Uh, and, uh, and we saw the mandate for the independent expert renewed by a clear majority of the council with support from all of the UN's regional groups. And I think that shows just how far we've come. It does seem to me there's a three-prong, three levels. First, you mentioned standard setting. Second, you mentioned implementation. Could you follow through a little bit on follow-up, on evaluation, how the countries actually implement what this norm that's been set here in Geneva? Yes, and I think that is is one of the areas of of priority, but also one of the areas of, of challenge. The Human Rights Council regularly adopts resolutions which sets out certain standards, which sets out certain human rights concerns in relation to particular countries, which identify reforms. There are, are sometimes challenges, of course, in, in whether the state will then follow through and uh, implement its commitments. The UK was uh, played a leadership role in a resolution on, on Sri Lanka, which followed up on a, a very strong report by, uh, by the Office of the High Commissioner, identified uh, concerns about uh, war crimes and, and crimes against humanity, the need for accountability. For you, Bob, because I've watched you for a good few years now, you invest massively long days every single Human Rights Council session. And a lot of it is in the kind of negotiation process and who is going to back this resolution? Can we get them on board? Could you give us a little peek behind the scenes how that works? I mean, I'm thinking about Sri Lanka or about the sexual orientation. I mean, the UK was active in both of these. I don't think that's just specific to the resolutions which you've mentioned. It's, it's quite common for whoever is leading on, on any resolution at the Human Rights Council to have to invest a huge amount of time and energy in delivering that resolution. The Western countries have a, a, a relatively small number of seats. So in order to be able to be successful here at the Human Rights Council, you have to build cross-regional alliances. You have to be able to work with countries in the other regional groups in order to be able to be confident that you will have a majority within the council if your resolution goes to a vote, which means spending a lot of time working with colleagues uh, from all delegations as well as talking to civil society to make sure that you are reflecting their concerns as well as being able to, to champion your own priority. It's certainly true that there are limits uh, as to what the council can do, but when it passes a resolution, particularly on a country, that carries a lot of, of political force. It carries a lot of moral force. And countries expend a huge amount of energy and resource in not being criticised by the council. Nobody wants a resolution citing them. I mean, I've watched this for more than a decade now. They will do a lot to avoid a resolution, let alone a commission of inquiry. 
or, or even a reference in a country statement. So as well as the, the resolutions that we pass, we, we make a lot of statements here at the Human Rights Council. Countries don't like being referenced in those statements, which I think should tell you something, which means that the council actually matters. Has moral authority, at least. And I think the, the, the other thing that the council has done is, is it's been quite creative. It has, over time, developed new tools and, and new mechanisms. And we saw that last year on Myanmar, where the European Union and the Organisation of Islamic Cooperation, the, the OIC, came together for the very first time on a resolution, a resolution which, at the start of this session, uh, the High Commissioner for Human Rights called historic, and I think it genuinely was historic, to create the, the strongest body ever so far by the Human Rights Council, an in investigative mechanism on, on Myanmar that will be tasked now with preparing case files, gathering documentation for eventual prosecution of those accused of, of atrocity crimes in Myanmar against the Rohingya and, and other minorities. That sort of mechanism was... was totally not foreseen even just a few years ago. We have that for Syria to a certain extent as well. And I think this is something maybe our, our listeners um, will be of interest to them because this is one of the things that you hear in other parts of the UN over and over and over again in peace building, in conflict resolution, that without accountability and justice for victims of violations, you're unlikely to get peace. Right. And, and in the Myanmar context, so i been working here since 2002. One of the early conversations I had here back then in 2002 was with Paolo Pinheiro, who's now the chair of the Syria Commission of Inquiry. Back then, he was the special rapporteur on Myanmar, and I was talking to him then about the prospects of setting up a commission of inquiry into allegations of, of systematic sexual violence in, in Shan State in, in Myanmar. And I find it hugely distressing and, and depressing that you fast forward 17 years and you have a report by the fact-finding mission which has just ceased its work specifically on sexual and gender-based violence documenting the same types of violations in the same country, quite possibly by the same military units. And, 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 and the question then is, how do we break that? And I think the only way of doing so is actual accountability for those in the chain of command who are most responsible. And if we don't find ways to achieve accountability, we'll probably be here in another 17 years facing the same sorts of, of atrocity crimes. The Universal Declaration is now over 70 years old. And my question is, how universal are the conceptions that countries have of human rights? Your example of me and mom must be terribly frustrating because obviously certain people are not in agreement with what you're saying. Has there been progress in having a kind of bottom line that people agree on what's acceptable and what's not acceptable? I would say there's no question that these are challenging times for the international human rights community. We are seeing states pushing back against even the concept of, of human rights. What's encouraging to, to us as Human Rights Watch is that we're also seeing, I think, a broader range of human rights situations uh, in countries around the world coming on to the Human Rights Council agenda. There was a time when it was notoriously difficult to bring attention to a, a new country situation, uh, and there were some players who almost were 
uh, beyond reach because they were seen as, as too powerful. So to me, it is emblematic that at this very session of the Council, we'll be considering a, a resolution to create an international accountability mechanism on Venezuela. And Venezuela has been a very powerful player in some of the, uh, the blocks of states that often resist this kind of international scrutiny that claim national sovereignty should trump international, international human rights. So these are times of, of change. Um, similarly, when you talked about the or asked about the impact of the Human Rights Council, I mean, we often see ourselves that just how much it means to to victims in countries when they feel that even when faced with an oppressive regime, that they're that the international community is listening, that they're heeding their calls for for justice, and that they're taking action. You mean an individual in a country around the world can make a protest directly to the council? Well, like, like all of us, individuals around the world can engage with the council, can bring their stories forward. But I recall at the last session of the council, for example, at the at the moment that the, the resolution on the Philippines was adopted, for the first time the council had highlighted and as a an international body called for reporting into the thousands of extrajudicial killings, uh, unlawful killings uh, that have taken place in, in the Philippines in the course of recent years. And there were human rights defenders that we had worked with who were here to, to support that resolution. And they just had tears streaming down their faces because for the first time, the stories which had been rejected and denied by, by the government, uh, the risks that they had taken in, in telling those stories were, were being validated and heard and acted upon by the international community. We've been very positive so far about the, the, the Human Rights Council and the UN's human rights work. And I, I don't want to, to uh, change the mood too much, but there is a certain amount of cynicism that the big guys and the friends of the big guys kind of escape scrutiny. I mean, if we look specifically, say, at the P5, the permanent members of the Security Council, are we seeing a move towards more acceptance that they too should be up there for scrutiny? I mean, we had a special rapporteur looking at child poverty in the UK, for example. Mm -hmm. We've had reports about the United States. China, Russia? I, I think it's absolutely true that, uh, that we are increasingly seeing uh, a, a climate where no state can feel that it is beyond scrutiny. One of the most difficult states to, to bring attention to has been China, and that's because uh, in addition to the dire human rights situations within the country and the intolerance of, of dissent and of, of freedom of expression, China has such enormous economic influence around the world. And so we, you know, we regularly hear, for example, Cameroon as an African country delivering a statement doing nothing but singing China's virtues. And it's difficult to believe that's unrelated to, uh, to massive investments that, uh, that China has, has brought to the country and loans that it has extended. And yet, at the same time, uh, one of the, the most shocking, I think, uh, human rights situations is currently unfolding in China's Xinjiang region, where estimates of about a, a million or so Muslims are being held in detention centers, which China calls vocational training centers, but subject to denials of their rights to freedom of religion, privacy, exercise of their culture, uh, you know, they're, uh, they're subject to arbitrary detention. So it is a situation that definitely demands uh, attention by the Human Rights Council, but because of the political and economic uh, dynamics is, is very difficult to achieve. Bob, do you want to come in there? I mean, I know you're from a, a diplomatic mission, so obviously you're in a different position from, from an NGO, but... I think one of the frustrations that countries like the UK have that actually do cooperate with the mechanisms of the Council is that that cooperation isn't universal, and one of the requirements of being a member of the Human Rights Council is that you should 
cooperate fully with the council, and that means its mechanisms, the special rapporteurs, the independent experts which the, the council creates. So they get to come and look in your prisons, look in your schools, talk to your social workers, all of this stuff. So they get access to your countries, they get to have private meetings with members of civil society and can make their own assessments of your human rights situation on the area that they're particularly focused upon, and then report that back to the Human Rights Council. And unfortunately, there are many members of the Human Rights Council who do not let special rapporteurs in, and so there's actually an imbalance in, in scrutiny between those who cooperate and, and, and those who don't. And I think it's a challenge to put a bit more pressure on, on those who, who don't cooperate and, and don't let the rapporteurs in and, and, and make there their be a cost attached to that. Isn't it interesting that when one thinks of human rights, one thinks of civil political rights, the right to speech, the right to association, but hasn't there been a change recently more and more toward inequality and economic, social and cultural rights? Well, I guess it depends who, who you're asking in terms of what is the perception of human rights from the days of the Universal Declaration itself. Uh, both uh, civil and, and political and economic social cultural rights were integrated within the same document. Uh, the divide came came later when that was separated into two international treaties. And, of course, different states have ratified different uh, of those of those treaties. And uh, that probably aligns with what they see as, as their own priorities. But certainly I, I think the council is... Uh, increasingly giving attention to uh, economic, social, cultural rights as it, as it should. And often those are inseparable from the, uh, the civil and political concerns that, that we have. I, mean, I mentioned Venezuela, and there we are seeing a crisis where millions have fled the country precisely because both their civil and political rights are, are suppressed, but also their, their access to basic health care, to, to food, is, uh, is not available to them, and, and so they have no choice but to, uh, uh, to, to flee. I, I think the, the terminology which uh, Danny used reflects, I think, a traditional Western concept mm -hmm. of human rights, and I think the the strength of the council is that actually it does represent the human rights priorities of the entirety of the United Nations. And if you look at both the, the resolutions which it adopts every single year and the, the, the experts which it creates, there's a, a pretty good balance actually between economic, social and cultural rights and, and civil or political rights as well as specific new issues. So I think the council is, is quite broad in the, the scope of the issues which it looks at. Once again, we're almost out of time. It's amazing how um, the discussion can go by so quickly. I've got a, a short question for each of you because it sometimes seems hard nowadays to put human rights on the agenda. Maybe to you first, Danny, old hand in Geneva, why do we actually need the Human Rights Council? Well, I think it began at the end of really the Second World War. And when there is a true catastrophe, we've seen that people have said, we have to do something so that this won't happen again. And to begin this broadcast with Eleanor Roosevelt is appropriate. Never again, certain things should not happen. And the question was to create an organization like the United Nations, but specifically the notion of human rights. I think there is more and more of an acceptance of human rights today, and they're going to get larger. There's going to be climate change. Uh, we've talked about sexual orientation. So all different kinds of issues have come up, but I think the language of human rights has become universal and accepted. John? I mentioned earlier that these are challenging times for the international human rights community, and in those 
difficult times, the Human Rights Council is, in our view, needed more than ever. It is the, the one place where the world's governments can meet and where civil society can interact with them in order to address some of the, the most pressing human rights concerns of the day. Most importantly, if there were no Human Rights Council, then we would be operating in a climate of almost complete impunity where abusive governments could uh, commit violations with nobody to, to hold them to account on the, on the world stage. Last words to you then, Bob. Why do we need the Human Rights Council? The Council is the UN's preeminent body for, for addressing human rights. And if you were to take it away, we would need to create it again. If you look at the, the, the full panoply of, of things that it does, it has a huge impact. And we've, we've only touched the, the surface today of, of, of what the Council actually does. But the Council, over the course of a, a five years, through, through the work that it does, looks at every single country in the world, and we haven't really talked about this. But the Council is, is very far-reaching. There are civil society organisations from every country that come out and engage with its work. And the impact which it has on the lives of those who are, are most vulnerable is, is actually very significant. So we need the Human Rights Council, but we also need the, the Human Rights Council to be there and working in line with the mandate that it was given by the General Assembly back in 2006. And for that to happen, we need the members of the Council to act in conformity with the rules that were set out. And we are perhaps getting there bit by bit, slow processes with everything else in, in the United Nations. But on that note, we are going to have to stop. What I would say, from my own point of view, is having watched John Fisher and Bob Last over the last 10 years, the amount of time and dedication they devote to the Human Rights Council and upholding human rights is admirable. And almost every human right any of our listeners could think of right now, they will have spent time on. So that's a reason the Human Rights Council is important. Thank you for listening to Inside Geneva. You can join us again next month. Um, and a reminder, you can send Swiss Info a suggestion for what kind of Geneva topics we should be talking about in upcoming episodes. I'm Imogen Folks. This has been Inside Geneva, a Swissinfo.ch production. And a reminder just before you go that you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series, including an in-depth documentary on the United Nations at 75. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to swissinfo.ch forward slash eng forward slash Inside Geneva. Join us again next time and thank you all for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. Mm -hmm.